The ranger thought that Bob seemed abnormally calm in reporting the death. The fact he'd waited in line and then in explaining what had happened, he'd shown almost no emotion. Bob told the ranger that they'd stopped to take a photo. Donna had stumbled backwards and fallen to her death. This is Red Rum, stories about the true victims of crime. Episode 64, Nancy, David, Susan, Donna and Sharon. Nancy Spangler had been married to Robert, or Bob Spangler, for 23 years. The couple had met when they were teenagers attending the same high school. Bob had noticed Nancy straight away. He liked how she looked. Her eyes were a deep brown and she was incredibly kind. The couple had gotten married in 1955 and Bob enlisted into the army. He wasn't there long after being discharged and so after that they decided to settle down. Then, six years into their relationship, Bob and Nancy had their first child together, a baby boy they named David. Two years later, along came a little sister for David. They called her Susan. Whilst providing for the family, Bob worked at a number of different places, Honeywell's camera and instruments division, in public relations, for PBS where he helped to develop Sesame Street, and finally American Waterworks Association. Whilst there, Bob and Nancy began to drift apart, and Bob began looking for attention elsewhere. His work at the American Waterworks Association saw him meet lots of new people, and he had hired an assistant called Sharon. Sharon couldn't be more opposite to Nancy, and Bob liked that. He spent the next few weeks and months courting her, and the two soon began dating. He didn't keep his affair secret, he really didn't care what Nancy thought. This was back in the 1970s, and to Nancy, a divorce just wasn't what she wanted. She'd invested so much time and energy into having a good, solid home, and had devoted her life to becoming a stay-at-home mum. And Bob didn't want a costly divorce either. Either way, the affair became so public and such a difficult thing for Nancy to deal with that she demanded Bob choose. And he did choose. So at the start of the year in 1978, he packed his bags and left the family home, leaving Nancy, Susan and David alone. He moved straight in with Sharon, with the view of settling down with her. But things were tough from the start. The couple, with their newfound freedom to be a couple in public, and all of the challenges of long-term relationships, began arguing. Unlike the arguments Bob would have with Nancy, his arguments with Sharon were full-blown and could last for hours, and sometimes days. The new relationship bliss that Bob had expected didn't last long, and just a month before Christmas that same year, he packed his bags again and this time moved back in with Nancy and his children, David and Susan. Nancy enjoyed the Christmas period. She loved to spoil the now teenagers, David was 17 and Susan was 15, and she even treated Bob to a brand new rucksack. She knew how much he liked the outdoors and especially hiking, something she wasn't too keen on herself because she had arthritis problems in one of her hands, so sometimes found getting about a little bit tricky. But she'd been so happy with how things had been going now Bob was back at home that she was keen to try and keep him happy. The time between Christmas and New Year was still a busy time at Bob and Nancy's home. Nancy was quiet in public, 
but she loved to entertain her children's friends. And so when Susan asked if she could have a New Year's Eve party round at the family home to also celebrate her boyfriend Timothy's birthday, Nancy said that she absolutely could. Later that night though, when Bob heard about the proposed New Year's Eve party that would be happening in just a few days time, he became angry. He told Nancy she was always too lenient with the children and this was yet another example of her leniency. On the 30th of December 1978, Susan's boyfriend Timothy called Susan's home phone. There was no answer but that wasn't hugely surprising. It was 10.30am on a Saturday morning and it was likely that Nancy and Bob were out doing things while Susan and David had a lie-in. Timothy didn't live far away, so he arrived soon after. He rang the bell, but got no answer. He knew Susan must be in. She told him that she didn't really have any plans that Saturday, and she would be expecting to see him. It wasn't unusual for him to open the door and walk inside if no one answered, but when he tried doing that, he realised it was locked. He tried the side door too, but that was also locked. After that, he ventured round to the basement window and pushed it open. He managed to crawl through it and into the basement below. He made his way up the stairs of the basement, round the corner, and then up the stairs that led to the second floor. He went into Susan's room and saw her still asleep, lying face down on the bed. He'd taken off his hat by this point and so threw it to her to wake her up. But she didn't move. He slowly walked towards her and sat down on the bed next to her. Something was wrong. He'd called the house, he'd rung the bell, he'd even thrown a stone at her window earlier when he was outside, and now he'd thrown his hat at her, and she still hadn't woken up. As Timothy rolled her over, he noticed that she didn't appear to be breathing. He also couldn't feel a pulse. Timothy ran out of Susan's bedroom to go and find help. He darted into David's room, but was met with a horrific and bloody scene. David was lying down, propped up partway on the floor and the bed, and he was covered in blood. Timothy again darted out of the room, and this time to the house phone. He called for paramedics and they arrived soon after, but they couldn't revive either Susan or David. Officers arrived at the scene soon after and it became clear that they had both been shot. Timothy hadn't seen Susan's wound because it had been an entry from the back and hadn't actually caused any bleeding. One of the officers noted that there was a small step stool in front of the closet and inside the closet on a high shelf were 38 caliber ammunition. It seemed that whoever had retrieved them from the closet must have been too short to get them without the aid of the small stool. The coroner arrived to formally assess the two bodies. After he'd done so, he made his way downstairs to the basement and turned on the light. In the corner of the room, slumped over, sat in a chair, was Nancy. She had also been shot, and in front of her, a letter that had been written on the typewriter. Quote, What do I say now that I decided to do this? I found the gun by accident some time ago and couldn't help thinking about this. I don't know why I didn't say anything to you. I feel shattered. We have always argued about who would have the kids. I will. I know you will get along. You always have. There was also Nancy's signature, N, on it. She used a shortened signature because she had a neurological disorder that made it hard for her to write out longer words, including her name. It was determined to be a double murder-suicide. 
At 4.45 that afternoon, Bob Spangler returned home to find it cordoned off with police tape. Bob was informed that his entire family was dead. Detectives brought him down to the station to take a statement and question him. It was there that they learnt that Bob and Nancy had had an argument the day prior, and he had told Nancy he was leaving her. They went to bed that night, and when he woke up in the morning, Nancy wasn't in bed. She'd already gone downstairs. Bob left the house at 8.30am for a walk. He was only gone for about half an hour before returning to get his car to drive out to a movie theatre. He told officers he hadn't gone back inside. After that, he'd gone to watch the 1978 release of the Lord of the Rings animation. The time of death was somewhere between 9 and 10am when Bob would have been driving away from the house. Bob identified the bodies of his wife Nancy, son David and daughter Susan. And then he told investigators that he was willing to take a polygraph test to prove his innocence. The detective could see that Bob was acting agitated and was hyperventilating, something that would throw the results of any polygraph test out of whack, and so he decided not to submit Bob to a polygraph. Meanwhile, the note Nancy had left was examined. It was concluded that it had been written on the family's typewriter, and the end signature was Nancy's signature, written by her, as concluded from several cancelled checks that had been used for comparison. However, on further and more detailed forensic investigation of the scene and the items in it, it became apparent that based on Bob's version of events, things weren't really adding up. Gunshot residue tests were conducted on both Nancy and Bob. Nancy's analysis came back to show that there hadn't been sufficient evidence to indicate the presence of gunshot residue. Bob's gunshot residue tests, however, came back to show that he had trace elements on the web of his hand, the back sides of his hands and his palms. After that, officers called Bob back into the station for further questioning. The second statement that Bob gave varied wildly from the first. This time, he said that after leaving the house at 8.30 and walking around for half an hour or so, he then returned home and entered through the garage. He said that he had called out Nancy's name but got no response, so he went a little further into the house. He noticed that the basement door was slightly ajar, so he went through and that's when he'd found Nancy slumped over in the chair, clearly not breathing. He saw the gun on the floor, so he picked it up. He stepped back a couple of feet and then dropped the gun back onto the floor. After that, he left through the garage. When officers asked why he'd just left the scene after discovering Nancy, he told them, quote, All I could feel was that I had to get away from there. I couldn't believe what had happened. After that, investigators did conduct a polygraph on Bob, but the first set of results were inconclusive, as were the second set. Then, a pair of gloves that Bob usually wore and presumably was wearing on the day were tested for gunshot residue, and a positive match was found, although it was stated that no conclusion could be drawn from the results, similarly to the polygraph test. Ultimately, although investigators had their suspicions, there was some evidence that did point to Nancy, like the small stool that had clearly been used to reach above into the closet shelf where the gun was held. And Bob did have a ticket for the movie theatre showing. Either way, whatever the investigators believed, they didn't have the evidence to do anything other than accept that Nancy had been the perpetrator. After that, Bob rekindled his relationship with Sharon. 
It was only a few days after he lost his wife and children that Sharon moved into their family home. By this point, Bob was 46 years old and knew exactly what he liked and exactly what he wanted. He was glad to be back with Sharon and he loved the outdoors so would often take long hikes through the mountains with her. The pair were athletic together and as much as Bob liked to run and hike, Sharon liked to teach yoga and go for long walks with her three dogs. The couple especially liked to hike in the Grand Canyon. It was just seven months after the deaths of his family that Bob and Sharon got married. They'd planned a West Coast motorcycle trip where they would stop by the Grand Canyon and explore. The couple returned over the next few years, often seeking out new trails and exploring far and wide. The first few years of marriage were quite blissful, but by 1987, things began to rapidly deteriorate. Sharon had always suffered with mental health issues, including symptoms of mania, depression and anxiety, which she helped regulate with medication. But things were getting trickier, and by 1987, Bob said that he and Sharon would be getting a divorce. The divorce came, along with a difficult legal battle, that resulted in Bob paying Sharon $500 per month for the next year, and then $400 per month for the following seven years. She was also to receive $150,000 in compensation from stocks and bonds that Bob owned. Bob attempted to lean into the single life after that, and spent the next couple of years alone, focusing mostly on hiking, especially in the Grand Canyon but it didn't take long before he was looking at starting to date again. He did date a couple of different women and then one day decided to put a personal ad in a newspaper called Westward. He soon got a response from a woman called Donna. The two organized to have their first date at a bar in Denver and Bob was impressed when he walked into the bar to find Donna there. She stood at five foot two and over the course of the date, he learned that she had five children who were all grown up now. She would do anything for her children and in fact, would do anything for most people. She was self-sacrificing and caring. She was gentle, but also protective. Bob was keen to introduce Donna to his hiking ways, especially heading out to the Grand Canyon, but Donna was petrified of heights and she suffered from vertigo. She did go with Bob and hike the canyon, but she did so because Bob wanted to. Despite that, she tried her hardest to make it a habit and went whenever Bob asked her to. In the summer of 1990, Donna and Bob got married. They planned to sell both their separate houses and then go traveling. This wasn't really Donna's plan, it was more so Bob's. Donna was so utterly in love with him that she was willing to uproot her life if it made him happy. Eventually, Bob and Donna bought a house together. And initially, Bob had tried to get Donna to agree to having the house in his name only. But Donna put her foot down and the house was in both of their names. However, she did put in her will that if she died before Bob, her portion of the house would be left to him. This relationship, however, soured quickly, and Donna found Bob to be difficult to live with, often finding her annoying and getting cross with her, and she felt depressed and lonely. By 1992, the couple were living almost completely separate lives, Donna quit her nine to five and went to Hawaii where she studied aerobics training for six weeks. Her plan when she returned was to work full time at the local sports club. The relationship only continued to get worse over the following year, but in April of 1993, 
Bob said he wanted to take Donna out to the Grand Canyon for their four-year anniversary. Despite Donna's hesitance, she agreed and the pair set off, with her hiking sticks at the ready to help her balance. Bob was an extremely experienced hiker, but midway through their trip, he chose an off-limits, illegal area for the two of them to set up camp. On the morning of the 11th of April 1993, four years to the day that Bob and Donna had first met, the couple woke up and soon began the day's hike. Not long into the hike, Bob said Donna had fallen off the cliff edge and tumbled hundreds of feet below. Bob made his way down a different route to find Donna on the ground below. He saw that she had multiple bruises and cuts and it was clear that she was dead. Bob then hiked up to the ranger's office and waited in line. When it was his turn, Bob told the ranger what had happened and asked for help. The ranger thought that Bob seemed abnormally calm in reporting the death. The fact he'd waited in line, and then in explaining what had happened, he showed almost no emotion. Bob told the ranger that he and his wife had stopped to take a photo, and as he was setting up the tripod, he heard a little sound, turned back around, and then he saw that Donna was gone. Donna had stumbled backwards and fallen to her death. He said he then rushed down another route to try and help, but as soon as he got there, he knew she was dead. He washed her face and then covered her body with a tarp before hiking back up towards the ranger's office. The sheriff's deputy came to take a statement from Bob about the events of the day, and Bob told him that Donna wasn't really into hiking, and she'd been feeling dizzy and shaky that morning. Ultimately, Donna's cause of death was determined to be multiple traumatic injuries and accidental. The accidental verdict was partially given because of the number of other accidental and fatal falls that happened in the Grand Canyon that year, a total of six, much higher than most years prior. It wasn't long after Donna's death and subsequent cremation that Bob got back in contact with his ex-wife Sharon. The pair had never lost contact and Bob still paid the amount in the divorce every single month, but this time when he got back in contact with her, he told her he wanted to give her a gift a one-off payment because he was single again and had money. He wrote this all in a letter to her, ending, quote, I'm willing to be friends still, if you are, but not terribly close friends, okay? I'm sorry, but the negatives of your life have an unfortunate tendency to spill over on anyone nearby, which always brings me down too. A year or so later, he actually decided that Sharon could move back into his house to live with him. She'd pay him rent and would live there as a lodger. By the end of 1994, Bob had another mysterious death linked to him. This time, he'd arrived home and seen that his ex-wife and current lodger Sharon had her bedroom door closed. Stuck on the outside of the door was a note that said, I did it this time. He went into her bedroom and found her lying on the bed, awake but very much out of it and not making much sense. Bob drove Sharon to the hospital, but it was too late. Ultimately, Sharon had died by intentionally taking an overdose of pills and alcohol. But five deaths, all linked in some way to Bob Spangler, was enough to finally get the police to take a look at the connection between them and the inconsistencies in Bob's stories. The hiking accident, as Bob would call it, made no sense given that Bob was an extremely experienced hiker. He would have known that that particular area was extremely rugged with loose and oftentimes falling rocks. On top of this, Bob had reported hearing a sound from Donna when she fell, something like a gasp. 
but Bob wore a hearing aid most of the time and needed it, but he never wore one when hiking. The question of how he could have heard a gasp came up and added to the inconsistencies in his story. The crime scene photos from the deaths of Nancy, Bob's first wife, and their children David and Susan were re-examined, and it became clear that Nancy's wound was atypical of the type of wound you'd expect to see if it was self-inflicted. It was determined the entire case needed further official reinvestigation. The gun was found a few feet away from Nancy's body, again abnormal if she had fired it, and there had been a man's sock wrapped around the butt of it. There was no GSR found on Nancy's hands, and the typewriter had been wiped clean so there were no fingerprints found on it. Aside from all of this, there was also the fact that with Nancy's condition, it was hard enough for her to fully sign her name, hence the initial being her go-to signature. But with this in mind, the question arose of how she would have been able to fire a gun with such acute accuracy three separate times. It was soon discovered that over the years following the deaths of his family, Bob had told new people that he'd met that it had been his own son who had killed his family. Another time, he told a story of a car crash. One version put him as the only survivor. Another put him at work when the fatal accident happened. What had actually happened that December morning was that Bob had planted the footstool in front of the closet with all of the intention of framing Nancy, and then he'd taken the gun out and hidden it, ready for using it later. Then he got Nancy to sign the letter he'd already written. He just placed a piece of paper over it and told her that it was a Christmas letter he wanted her to sign. After that, he told Nancy to come down to the basement. He had a surprise for her. She sat in the chair she was later found in, closed her eyes as Bob had told her to, and then he killed her. Next, he made his way into Susan's room where she was asleep, lying on her front. He aimed at the centre of her back and with one pull of the trigger killed her. Finally, he made his way to David's room, where he tried to do the same as he'd done with Nancy and Susan, but his aim was off and he missed his target. The bullet did hit David, but it didn't kill him. Bob thought quickly. He pulled the pillow that was near David's head and forced it over his face. He held it there hard until he felt David stop struggling. Then Bob went back down into the basement and placed the gun on the floor near to Nancy's body and left the house. Bob was expert at convincing himself he had committed the murders as a necessity. He wanted to be with Sharon, his mistress at the time and soon to be wife, but of course, that didn't last long either, and after the divorce from Sharon, he moved on to courting Donna. Then, years later, when Bob and Donna had woken up that April morning and began their hike for the day in the canyon, Bob got ready to enact the plan he'd been plotting for months. He knew he had to act quickly before any other hikers wandered into the area. As Donna stood near to the edge of the cliff that morning, looking towards Bob, he walked up to her and in one swift motion, shoved her backwards and over the cliff edge. He'd shoved Donna with such force that he'd actually nearly gone over with her. He'd managed at the last moment to steady himself and look down as Donna fell to her death. After that, He'd gone down a different route to check Donna's body and make sure she was actually dead. After he was satisfied, he climbed back up the trail and eventually made it to the ranger's office. Bob knew how expensive another divorce could be and he wasn't prepared to give Donna anything. Killing her wasn't a difficult choice for him, or at least in this case, he viewed it yet again 
as a necessity. The reason we know all of this in such detail is that in mid-2000, Bob was diagnosed with terminal lung and brain cancer and it meant he only had a few months left to live. The FBI had conducted an emergency interview with Bob over the following days and about two hours into their interviews, after initially denying any wrongdoings in all of his wife's deaths and the deaths of both his children, Bob finally admitted what he'd done. Quote, I have no idea why I was capable of such a thing. I asked myself afterward, how in the hell was I capable of doing that? And yes, having made that decision, I simply followed through on it. Specifically speaking about killing Nancy, Bob said, quote, it was easier than divorce. Many times afterwards, I thought, how could I do that? It was my nature, I guess. Something in me that allows me to take myself apart from whatever is happening. Like standing on the outside and watching. I make a decision and carry through on it. He said that he killed David and Susan because Sharon didn't want children and so it seemed like a good idea at the time. Bob then admitted to pushing Donna off the canyon edge to her ultimate death, but did say he hadn't planned that beforehand. It had crossed his mind, he said, and he thought that he may possibly do it at some point, but he hadn't decided he was definitely going to do it. He said that Sharon's death, however, wasn't anything to do with him. How true that is, we will never know for sure. He told the two detectives sat opposite him in the interrogation room, quote, I'm different. I think I'm interesting. I'm not your average, everyday person. After that, he wrote a letter to detectives asking them not to release this information publicly. He was concerned about what the people he knew, friends and beyond, would think if they found out what he had done. Quote, In other words, you're getting a free ride on this. I'm making it incredibly easy on you. Isn't that enough? Reassure me, please. In a public statement letter, he said, quote, I'd say about 99.9% .9 qualified as an eminently admirable human being, a good friend, able mentor, solid role model and pretty much all-round good guy. But in two days out of nearly 68 years, I was a killer. Bob was sentenced to life in prison, though of course his health was deteriorating quickly and he didn't have much time left. In August 2001, Bob died at the age of 68. One of Donna's children said, my mum was without a doubt the single most influential aspect in my life. When that was stripped away, it had affected every aspect of my life since then. Mum loved life. She knew love. Unconditional love. I know we were all devastated, but I've heard the single hardest thing to do in anyone's life is bury your own child, let alone your only child. Grandma stopped living that week. No doubt mum and grams had plans. Many plans. The defendant not only murdered my mother, he destroyed an absolute sweet, innocent grandmother in the process. 